What is your killer strategy? The one that gives your business the ultimate bulletproof competitive advantage. Welcome to Your Advantage Play with your host, Joel Block. Former professional blackjack player and card counter who left Las Vegas and spent his life in that giant casino on Wall Street in the hedge fund and venture capital businesses. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. These are tough times, and all of us have to be wondering why is it so hard to find and keep devoted employees? Where are all these people, and why can't we seem to find them? And then once you get them, it's hard to get them to stay. Is it wages or is it something else? To answer those questions, Joe Mull. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joel. Glad to be with you. Hey, man. So uh, listen, we know each other a long time, and I know this is your your whole area. Uh, and the whole thing about uh, you know employees, people, the whole thing. Uh, is this going to be an HR discussion, or is this is is can you separate what we're going to talk about from HR? How does that kind of work first? Well, I think it could be a reality-based discussion because there's some things we're getting wrong and there's some myths that we continue to subscribe to in the workplace about what employees want or what we're supposed to be doing to get them to stay. Um, and I, I know there are some folks in the corner of the HR world who would probably disagree with a lot about what I'm going to tell you. And there are some folks who would probably pound on the table in agreement with some of it. So I suppose it's a mixed bag. Well, we're definitely not talking about compliance, though. So, I mean, we're just going to no, talk. No, no. I mean, I mean, so that that's off the table. But all right. So, um, first of all, one of the things that business uh, executives ask me all the time, and this is just mysterious to all of us, where did everybody go? I mean, since the pandemic, there just seems to be this shortage of people. Uh, where are they and why can't we find them? Yeah. So... There are a couple of different things happening all at the same time. Uh, the first is that we continue to add jobs to the economy at record rates, and there are literally not enough people to fill all the jobs that are out there. This has been a problem since before COVID, but it's continued to be exacerbated because the economy has been sizzling hot and because we keep adding jobs that didn't exist even a couple of years ago. And then you add to it what happened during the pandemic. The CEO of Microsoft said, we experienced two years of digital transformation in two months. And that's true. You remember in the spring of 2020, we all had to figure out how to work from home, how to use Zoom. All of a sudden, there were jobs, positions, uh, opportunities for people to do work from home or remotely or hybrid that people would never would have thought of even a year or two before that. And so now we're seeing organizations expanding different kinds of roles. Now someone who used to go to work in a restaurant or a retail environment uh, in crappy hours, earning lower wages, can take a, a home based customer service job or a tech support job or can do a data entry job all from home when even those kinds of roles weren't available a couple of years ago. So that's one aspect of this is the tech piece. But the other piece, as I said, is that we have continued to swell in terms of the number of jobs that are out there and the shortfalls we have for the people who can fill them. So literally, you think it's because uh, there are so many new jobs that have been added in the economy that there just aren't enough people to fill the job. And I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm, I'm just, I just want to get clear about that because, uh, you know, there's just a lot of disagreement about, you know, what the problem is. A lot of people have said, well, a lot of people have left the workforce and they drive Uber now, or they do other things that are again, tech driven, uh, and they're taking different kind of jobs than they were, than they were doing before. So maybe that's not that different from them taking a customer service job, uh, you know, where they're working from home or doing something different, but, uh, they've just really reorganized themselves 
in this economy. We had 50 million people voluntarily leave their jobs last year. That number does not include terminations. It does not include retirements. These are folks who left a position of employment. But we had 75 million hires take place last year, 50% more hiring across every industry category in the United States. And this trajectory has been consistent since the Great Recession in 2008. We have consistently had more hiring than we have had quitting. And so what people are doing is they're not quitting. This is a myth. People are switching. And more specifically, they're upgrading. And the narrative that the problem is that there are a group of people who have decided to sit on the sidelines is false. There's no data to back this up. Unemployment in the U.S. right now is below 4%. There's only three months in the last 50 years when it's been lower than it is right now. And it's been consistently low for a while. In fact, the Chamber of Commerce put out a report a couple of weeks ago that said if every unemployed person in the United States took a job today, there'd still be 4 million unfilled jobs tomorrow. So there's not an invisible mass of people who are sitting on the sidelines. There's opportunity everywhere. And coming out of a pandemic that took an already exhausted workforce and broke it, people are looking for upgrades to their quality of life. So they're running towards the jobs that give that to them. And they're staying away from those frontline jobs like restaurants and retail, where I'm in a position and I'm doing a crappy hours and getting lower wages you know uh <laughs> this is this is such a uh, confusing thing to uh, to understand i mean if the 50 million uh leaves 75 million new and now obviously there's a lot of double counting involved i mean that's not all new people it's people are leaving coming going you know and like that but this is just it's it's very fascinating to me and and i kind of wonder are the people who are leaving for these switches that we're talking about, are they making a lot more money? Well, in some places, we've seen wage growth over the last two years that hasn't happened for the decade prior to that. So for folks on the bottom half of the socioeconomic ladder here in the US, wages have largely remained stagnant for about 40 years. And then last year, they went up about 5% in response to people saying, I cannot continue to work at this wage level. As we saw inflation go up, as we saw companies struggling to hire, many of them turned around and said, okay, I guess we got to throw some money at this to try to draw people in. The other part of this, Joel, is that for people in the bottom half of the socioeconomic ladder, many of them still aren't even making a living wage in the United States. If you're familiar with the concept, a living wage is not minimum wage. It's not market wage. Living wage is an economic calculation around what somebody has to earn to avoid a substandard of living. And you can go to livingwage.mit.edu and find the living wage for every county in the United States. And it breaks it down by the number of people in households. So I can sit here right now and I can tell you that if you make less than 17 dollars an hour as a full-time employee in the United States, you will struggle to afford adequate food, clothing, shelter, housing, childcare. But here's the rub. That number is for a household of one. When you add a child, if I am a single parent with one child in the United States, I have to earn at least $30 an hour to avoid a substandard of living, to afford basic human needs like the ones I just listed. Right, so, so what listen, we're yeah. seeing in that wage growth is companies realizing this and committing to increase wages, not as a ta just as a talent acquisition strategy, but recognizing that if we have employees who are struggling to make ends meet, they're much more likely to leave. Listen, I don't want to get too political here because this sort of kind of moves into politics, but 
if somebody needs thirty dollars an hour, and I, I certainly don't agree, don't disagree with that at all. I'm, I'm quite certain that you're probably uh, very close, and and even thirty dollars doesn't uh, you know go very far, you know, in, in very many places in the United States, certainly not bigger cities. But whose responsibility is it to give them the thirty dollars? Is it the company's job to give them the thirty dollars, or is it the employee's job to make their value bring it up to thirty dollars? I mean, if they don't have much skills. Is the company responsible to give them $30 to help them out and make sure that they have a good life? Well, if we thought of people as a commodity, you can ask the same question. Whose responsibility is it to keep the cost of concrete low for Masons? Whose responsibility is it to keep the cost of uh food supplies low for restaurants. I guess I completely reject the premise of the question, my friend. If I can't pay my bills, why would I work for you? Yeah. Well, you know what? I Because you probably don't have a lot of other choices. And that that's, I don't want to go too far but, down But the we have those choices. The, 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 you are living in the, in the biggest period of worker-free agency ever in the yeah. history of the United States. There are talented, experienced people out there looking for jobs. This is not an issue of lazy, unskilled people all of a sudden being able to have their pick, although that's a little bit more true than it ever has been before. We're also talking about established, experienced talent who for years have still struggled to make their economic ends meet, and now they're in a market where there's more opportunity than ever before. You know, uh, I mean, clearly enough, uh, you know, wages have gone up a lot more than 5% because, you know, hamburger makers at uh, In-N-Out Burger are, are getting $20 and managers at those places are making $30 and $35. And those signs are posted right on their doors. I mean, so for, for everyone in the world to see. So uh, people that bring, uh, you know, limited or certain skills to the table, that company needs those people. And if they can't get the concrete that they need to build the building, then they got to pay for the concrete. But uh, I also think that the uh, that the people need to put themselves in a place where they can maximize their opportunity as well. So I don't think that anything, any almost anything, is is this or that. I think it's always both and, and that's just kind of how life works. Uh, employees have a responsibility to make themselves better, and companies have a responsibility to uh, to do better too. And that's all of us need to raise the bar and like that. So give us some of the strategies that you uh, you know counsel companies on to help them uh, be successful and be a better boss and be better at working with their people. So their people decide they want to stay. Cause it's not only about wages. I mean, it's well no, known that it's not. not only about wages. So let's talk about what some of the other things are. So I've been spending, I've spent 20 years teaching leaders how to create the conditions at work that lead employees to join and stay and care and try. And in the past two years, we went and analyzed more than 200 research studies around why employees quit or join or stay long term. And I can tell you, Joel, with conviction that companies will easily find and keep devoted employees when they win in three specific areas of the employee experience. It's what we call ideal job, meaningful work, and great boss. And it sounds falsely reductive, but these have dimensions to them. So ideal job is about my compensation, my workload, and flexibility. If I have a job where I have adequate to generous compensation, a manageable workload, and I have some flexibility around when and where and how I work, I look around and I go, wow, this job really fits into my life. Let's go. And then meaningful work is about what I do and who I do it with. And what we recognize is if people feel like their work matters, if they do work that aligns with their strengths in a place where they experience belonging, their emotional and psychological commitment goes up. 
They're experiencing what's called meaningful work. And so the quality of what they do goes up. And then that third so are, factor is great boss. Wait, wait. Are you, when you talk about, uh, you know, meaningful work, are you talking about that the company is doing something? For example, uh, let's say you uh, really believe in, uh, you know, the the whole climate change initiative and all the other stuff that you want to work for a company uh, like Patagonia, for example, like a clothing company that's, I mean, are you talking about cause-driven companies, that kind of alignment, or are you just really talking about uh, some other aspect of meaningful? Yes, but it's more than that. So when we look at purpose as a dimension of meaningful work, yes, we know, especially Gen Z and millennial workers, they need to believe in what their company is doing out there in the world. There is direct line of sight between people wanting to be a part of an organization and that. But purpose is also about, do I feel valued? Do, do, do I believe that my boss recognizes me, gives, has has the perception that I contribute here? Do I believe that my work makes a difference in the lives of others? So even if I'm uh, tearing tickets at the local movie theater, if I believe that that work matters, that somebody there believes that what I'm doing is important, that goes a long way to me experiencing meaningful work. So it runs the gamut from the, the people that I work with all the way up to my company's place in the world. Where do you think that... Um... That that whole thing comes from, for example, the guy standing there uh, tearing up tickets. I mean, truthfully, if we're all going to go to the movie theater, somebody's got to tear up tickets or they have to scan the barcode or whatever, whatever the job is. It's you know, the same job. But uh, that person contributes to the patrons having a good experience uh, that mm -hmm. afternoon. And if that person is friendly and happy and joyful and uh, it contributes. So who helps that person? to recognize that they're doing important work because a lot of people would say, well, that's meaningless uh, kind of uh, work or, you know, they, they'd say something negative. Uh, but but yeah, there's only one person who can, and it's that person's direct supervisor. That's the only person who has the power and authority to reinforce for that person that they matter. And if I'm the boss of the guy tearing tickets, because it's probably what, a 16-year-old teenager who's standing there tearing tickets? If I own that movie theater and I don't want that person kind of swaying side to side and, and looking stoic and not doing what we might call outstanding customer service, I need to activate their commitment in some way that goes beyond just, hey, I'm paying you $8 an hour to stand here and tear tickets. So, so I might do this when he first starts working for me. I might say, hey, Joel, what married couple do you know that has been married the longest? I want you to go and ask them about their first date, and I want you to come back and tell me about it. And when you come back and tell me about it, I'm going to say, isn't it amazing that this couple that you talked to can remember so many details from a night that happened decades ago? Guess what? Every single person walking past you might be in the middle of that day that they're going to remember for the rest of their life. And we get to be a part of that. Isn't that amazing? And then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to send that kid and I'm going to say, go talk to somebody in your neighborhood or in your life who has young kids and ask them what it takes for them to get out to a movie by themselves. I've got three kids under the age of 13, Joel. If I want to go to a movie, it's like moving heaven and earth. I'm out $50 <laughs> for a babysitter before I start the car, right? I, you know, there are so many things that have to happen. And when this kid comes back to me and tells me what he's learned, I'm going to say half the people walking by you had to part with a lot of time and energy and resources. And this is just the one night they're going to get to catch their breath when they're not working at the hospital or working as a police officer. And isn't it pretty special that we get to be a part of it? When we make it about something more than just tearing tickets, people tend to care and try. I, I, I think it's brilliant. I, I'm not making a joke. That is brilliant that if everybody could see that the work that they do matters in some way, 
I, I, how could they not be more proud of themselves? I mean, they would wake up feeling good about being uh, a citizen, about being an employee, about being a, you know, whatever they are. Uh, every person should uh, should feel that way about what it is that they do. Every person. And, and you know what? I think if we did, we'd have a lot less crime and a lot less uh, mischief in our country uh, and all kinds of other problems would dissipate. I think that is spectacular. So if you question, though, have you ever found a job that somebody couldn't do that to? Have I ever found a job? I get this challenge every once in a while because I've written about purpose in a couple other books that I've written. Um, no, you know, I, I haven't. And that doesn't mean it's not there, right? You catch me on an off day, I might have to really give some thought to it. But I've had conversations with people about working in a call center and and debt collectors and working with garbage trucks, you know, the, the, some jobs that some people might look at and say, I don't want any part of that. But the truth is, Everything that somebody does in one way or another has a positive impact on somebody's life, on the ability to provide goods and services or relief to somebody else somewhere. And when we create that line of sight, we're able to, to connect people to purpose. And you just said it a minute ago, Joel, if we can find a way to do this for everybody, it becomes like you're cracking the code for some societal change. That's why I will argue that one of the most important skills a frontline manager can develop is storytelling, is being able to connect the dots between even the most mundane tasks and duties of someone's job and that difference that they make in the lives of others. And it's why one of the most important things a CEO can do is to come up with a compelling purpose that describes why we do what we do and how it impacts others in the world, and then connect people's jobs to that, regardless of what those jobs are. So how do you counsel companies? I mean, you must have clients that you uh, advise on this topic. I mean, are you counseling companies about these kind of things? And, and how does that go? Well, most of the time I'm doing one of two things. We do a lot of training and development work for frontline and mid-level managers and, and teaching them how to be better bosses, because that's the single most influential factor on the employee experience is the person that I work for and the degree to which that person can create the conditions at work for me to thrive. So my, my company has for about a decade now focused on frontline manager training. Uh, the other part of the work that I do is as a keynote speaker and uh, talking with organizations about the frameworks that they need to put into place to engineer the kind of employee experience that leads people to join and stay and care and try. And so I do a lot of association work. I do some business advisor work. Do you, um, I, do you find that there are just some people that are just too grouchy to get better and, and, and to be enthusiastic or, you know, especially if they're a supervisor and they're grouchy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just kind of trickles down to the person below them. I mean, I mean, a grouchy person is, it's not easy for that kind of person to, you know, be uplifting. How do you, how do you get people to be in a more uplifting environment, especially a lot of these frontline people, you know, they're just not, uh, they haven't, maybe they haven't gotten a promotion in a long time. Maybe they're kind of stuck where they are. They're not happy about something and they take that problem out on the people who are around them. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I have had the change of scenery conversation with more organizations than I can count. When you have an abrasive leader, let's just use that term as the catch-all for what you just described. If you have an abrasive leader, interestingly, a lot of times they don't even know that they're abrasive. They've just settled into a pattern of behavior that's second nature to them. It's the responsibility of the people above that person to know that that is happening and to address it. I get questions a lot from the people that this person supervises. 
my boss, I'm a manager, but my boss is the problem. My boss is abrasive. My boss is difficult. Uh, how do I fix that? And my answer is you can't. You don't have the power or authority to do that. We have to have director level and above personnel and organizations who are paying attention to managers and to the kind of environment that they create. And when we see someone who cannot come to work with a modicum of empathy and compassion for the people that they supervise, it's probably time for a change of scenery for that person. So I am not in the camp, Joel, that everybody can be saved. There are some folks for whom enough time has passed that a change of scenery is the only solution. Change of scenery, meaning a change of company. Potentially, unless you want to move that person to another division. And I'm not going to lie, I have seen that work, but it usually doesn't. I would not imagine it works uh, very well. So, yeah. and what was the third one? There, there were, you get meaningful work, uh, you know, yeah, ideal and, job. And what the, was third the third one was one? great boss, which we just started. Yeah, we just started talking about. So ideal job, meaningful work and great boss. And there are dozens of things that a, a leader at any level has to get right for someone to call them a great boss. But it turns out that the three most important are three things that we don't pay a lot of attention to. It's trust, coaching and advocacy. So trust is about do I grant trust to my employees and do I also earn their trust, not by being a micromanager, but by caring about them as a person and being a competent leader? The second dimension is coaching, which is a very specific kind of conversation, right? It's not just telling people what to do all the time. It's asking for their opinions and accessing their creativity and coaching them to higher levels of performance. Coaching is a, a sort of secret sauce skill that a lot of leaders don't get. And then the third is advocacy. And if you think about what an advocate does, it's somebody who acts in somebody else's best interests. So do I care about you as my employee or do I also care about who you are outside of work? Do I care just about the job you're doing when you're here with me or do I care about your career, whether that includes extra time with us or not? Do I advocate to make sure that you have the equipment, the materials, the information you need as an employee to do your jobs? I can pay you well and I could be super nice to you, but if you've got a 15-year-old computer that needs to run complicated databases and it sounds like an airplane coming in for a landing, I need to go and advocate for you to get a new computer. And that's a part of my job. So all those things bake into, pie, into the pie together to make a great boss. Yeah. You know, it seems to me like uh, part of the problem is sometimes the, the leader doesn't really understand their job or their role. And if they don't have a good understanding of, you know, for example, I've always thought, you know, that the uh, being kind of in the, uh, the medium-sized business area that the CEO's job is to, uh, you know, give people the resources that they need to do everything that they need to do. And, and you know, and that's that's kind of a big part of what their responsibility is. Mm -hmm. And if that person isn't giving them those resources, then how can you expect the people to be the best you can be? And I've never won personally to point the finger at other people till I point the finger at myself and say, you know, what mm -hmm. have I have I done everything I could do? And I just imagine a lot of these leaders uh, either don't have the attitude to point the finger to themselves or or secondly, really just don't have a, a clear understanding of what it is they need to be doing uh, because a lot of people are kind of thrust into these roles that maybe they're not prepared for. Yeah. And that's exactly why we wrote this new book. It's called Employalty, How to Ignite Commitment and Keep Top Talent in the New Age of Work. Because for years, we've been telling leaders, if you want to know what you need to fix, go and ask. 
And then they go and ask their employees and two things happen. Either the employees don't know what they want. They don't know how to describe it. They're not tuned into it or they're not comfortable talking about it. If I don't have a great relationship with my boss or if I don't feel safe sharing my perspective publicly, I'm going to hold that into myself. And so this book was about creating a clear, simple framework that allows us to understand that every single employee in every job and every company on the planet has an internal psychological scorecard that determines whether or not they join, stay, care, and try. And if we know what's on that scorecard, we can start to figure out where are we checking the boxes and where are we falling short? Because when we check all of those boxes on that internal scorecard, on that ideal job, meaningful work, and great boss, you become, for one thing, you become impenetrable to poaching, right? If I'm getting everything I want from my employer, I'm not going to look around and go elsewhere. Second, when my commitment goes up, when I have that ideal job and that meaningful work and that great boss, all of my effort and attention goes up. And then that means every metric you care about in your organization, that levels up too. If we're talking about quality, service, customer experience, reputation, revenue, when you have a committed workforce who considers your company their destination workplace, everything you care about levels up. And so that's what we wrote the book for, so that we can help leaders at all levels of an organization understand what the conditions are that lead people to thrive. Well, it, number one, it sounds uh, fantastic. Uh, as I look at the last couple of years, it seems like the job of leaders has changed. It has just changed, and just in general. Uh, and and I really kind of have a sense. And and you know, our in fact, our trend report has recently just come out, and we talk about some of these things in the form of trends. Uh, one of the things that we notice is that the leadership that's in place right now, which is mostly old white men. Uh, is just not getting the job done. The disconnect between them and their workplace is getting bigger and bigger. Uh, you know, for example, uh, work from home, the hybrid model, you know, what do we do? Companies are starting to demand, listen, I want it back the way it was in 2019, and I don't want to hear any any uh, any flack about it, you know? And the employers are going, well, you know, we're just not doing that. It just didn't happen. We, we did good before. The other thing is, that a work from home environment requires you trust people more than when you're standing there staring at the, staring over their shoulder all day long at the workplace, uh, which is probably part of why people like it because they're not getting stared at all the time. Mm -hmm. So how are you finding leaders are uh, adapting to this new environment? A lot of the new things that are happening in the marketplace. Well, I think it depends, just like you said, on where they're at in their career. I think that adaptation, as you noted, is probably easier for someone who is, isn't so long in the tooth. But I don't know that I would classify the willingness to adapt uh, by any kind of age or background category, because I think there are some folks who uh, are newer leaders who maybe are unadaptable, uh, whereas there's a lot of uh, you know older white guys like you and I who are quite flexible. And I think the reality is... There's this debate about whether or not we should change, and it's the wrong conversation. This is an adapt or die moment for organizations of every stripe. It's not should we change, it's when will we change. If we change sooner rather than later, we're going to be able to have access to a much larger pool of talent, and we're going to be able to get them into our organization and get them to be a fan of our culture, and they're going to be more likely to stay. Whereas if we wait and we insist on the old way of doing business, then that adaptation is going to come too late. And to the work from home conversation that you brought up, 
I, I know personally at least a dozen CEOs who have mandated a return to the office, had so much turnover as a result of that mandate that they had to privately walk it back in order to keep their personnel happy. And in that case, you have the, the, the folks on the ground, the boots on the ground saying, listen, we have proven we can do this. We have proven that not only can we do it, but our quality of life is better, and we are not willing to accept going back to the old ways. And so what we advise in the book actually is a compromise that for most organizations, yes, work from home is a viable option, but there are also some really important things that you get by having people together in workplaces around innovation, creativity, camaraderie. And so those two groups actually have to work together to say, yes, let's have some work from home options so that people can enjoy that better quality of life, but let's not sacrifice all the things that we get from in-person by finding a way to gather periodically together. So that's, that adaptation a, is really driven about like what 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 are my struggles? If it struggles with keeping and finding people, then the adaptation becomes necessary. It's not a choice. Well, and that that's the hybrid model is that mm-hmm. there there absolutely is good reason why people should come to the office, but that doesn't mean every yep. single day. Maybe it's right. once a week. I think the question has to be, um, what's the reason we're bringing them to the office? And if it's to watch them work then you know then you're running a kindergarten and that's not the kind of environment that quality people want to work in uh, now if it's for training if it's for bonding if it's for lunch if it's for a sporting event uh, so that we can all get together and do things together and talk about whatever the things are we need to talk about team meetings whatever absolutely 100 i think people would be happy to come in even if they have to come in on an airplane once a month or if they yeah. live in the if they live in the same city where they always lived uh, you know once a week or twice a week but you know you give people some options I was doing a keynote recently and afterwards the CEO of the hospital came up to me and he said, man, I just can't get to the remote work thing. He said, you can't see what people are doing. You don't know if they're double dipping, working multiple jobs. You don't know if they're staying on top of things. And he said, I just can't do it. And I said, well, none of the problems you just listed have anything to do with remote work. Those are problems of trust. And what we see is it comes down to what do you believe about people? Most of the time we see organizations putting in these complex systems of monitoring, like we've seen some just really bananas software programs that come through your camera and watch you work or count your keystrokes that are all there in an effort to prevent the rare bad apple from doing harm or getting away with something. And then we impose these systems and structures onto large groups of largely ethical people. And it sends a really powerful message to employees, which is, hey, we don't trust you. And if I don't feel like the people that I work with trust me, then I'm just looking out for number one. The truth is most people who work from home are thrilled to be able to do it. So they're not going to screw around and watch Netflix all day because they don't want to lose the opportunity to keep working from home. If you start with the belief that most people are ethical people and have integrity, you actually approach building those systems out in completely different ways. It's, you know, you're right. It's it's partly about trust, but there's something else going on too. There's um, for hundreds of years, we've measured input because that's the only thing we were able to measure. Now, uh, in this environment, you have to measure output. So you have to give people instruction. Uh, if they answer the phone, okay, then you have to be available to answer the phone these certain hours. If you produce uh, tax returns, then you need to produce a certain number of tax returns. And I, and listen, if you're a really fast worker and you do it in 20 hours, uh, you know, 
hooray, then you're fantastic. And if it takes you 42 hours, then then that's what it takes. But this is the workload and you uh, you measure output instead of input. And part of the problem for bosses is they don't know how to measure output. They only know how to measure input because that's what they've been doing for the last 40 years. And that's part of why I said that the old guard has to go away because the new guard is capable of thinking. I'm not saying that there's 100% of the old guard, that there are people who could think in a different way. Uh, you know, particularly uh, thought leader type people like maybe we are, but absolutely uh, you have to think in a new way and you got to think about output, not input. Uh, and again, that really applies more to service-based people, not people who are more labor oriented people. But uh, you know, it's uh this has been a, an awesome discussion. I've really, I've really enjoyed this. I, I kind of see a, a different dimension in how you think. I like how you think a lot. And, you know, one of the things about this show, we talk about the inside track, the best, fastest, and smartest way to get things done. You've talked about all those things. What's the killer strategy though? If you had to say there's one advantage play that you encourage your clients to do, what's the advantage play that you encourage everybody to do? Joel, people generally do a great job when they believe they have a great job. So commit to treating people better at your workplace than they would be treated anywhere else and they're pretty likely they're going to stay and do a great job. Yeah, well, you know what? Awesome thoughts. And uh, when somebody uh, delivers on the promise of the show, delivering the best, smartest, and fastest way to get something done, and, and they talk about the advantage play, that, to me, makes you an advantage player. And we thank you for uh, being on the show. And I look forward to you uh, being a friend of the show in the future. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. been listening to Your Advantage Play with your host, Joel Block. To learn more about how to work with Joel and cultivate your own high-limit advantage plays, visit theadvantageplayer.com. Subscribe to Your Advantage Play wherever you get your podcasts.